0: Join the
1: conversation
0: the smart way.
1: This is Cape Talk. And you are joined by the naked scientist, Dr. Chris Smith. And Chris, we'll start with the first question that's popped through. Um, Many paints are water-based instead of solvent-based, even though they are to be used in an outdoor setting. But why don't they wash away when it rains? How do they actually become
0: waterproof? This is called an emulsion. And the way that this is made is that you have in the same way that actually, when we take milk, and we can turn milk into butter, you've got little bubbles or globules of fat, which are surrounded by particles that enable them to dissolve and when you churn milk and you merge the particles together they then form the solid buttery bit and the water floats off it's exactly the same with these paints where you've got tiny particles with the paint which is oil-based and therefore water repellent inside these particles which make it water soluble when you put the paint on the wall the water evaporates the oil-based bits then cling together and to the wall and then they make a water repellent coating
1: Oh, okay. That sounds clever enough. <laughs> now, here's another one. I've been a vegetarian for a few years, not based on moral grounds, but just trying to be healthier. But last week, I had a burger, a Wagyu burger. And the next morning, I was experiencing intense cramps, heartburn, reflux, and extreme nausea. Now, this is not a diagnosis question. It just asks does one's digestive system make use of different gut bacteria to digest meals as opposed to vegetables?
0: Yes, absolutely. There's two things that could be going on here. One is that, much as I hate to say it, it's possible that that burger may have had some passengers in the form of microbes aboard and some toxins that could have accounted for these symptoms. And I did hear a pretty grim statistic. I was talking to a PhD student when I was in Durban and her project was to go to various meat retail outlets. She was working in Joburg, but this is probably representative of many places, and she was looking at the incidence of listeria colonisation in meat products. Listeria are bacteria which can colonize a range of high protein foods they can grow in cold conditions so even though you put your food in the fridge the bacteria still multiply that's why they're a problem in say french cheese is made from unpasteurized milk but about 30 percent of the meat that this person tested from south african meat outlets was positive for listeria Now, you can destroy Listeria by heating the food properly, but it can therefore be regarded as a a sort of indicator species that perhaps the handling of that food or the provenance of that food isn't that good. And therefore, there could be other nasties there. So one possible way to account for this person's symptoms is that it wasn't the fact that their microbiome was knocked off whack. It was that there were some other microbial passengers and toxins there, and that could have accounted for it. But The deeper question is, if I change my diet radically, what does that do to the microbial passengers that live in my intestine? Because there are about 100 trillion bacteria that live just in our intestines, and they do an incredibly important job for us. They weigh about a kilo, and they are our intestinal microbiome, and there are thousands of species of them, and they all differ according to their relative populations the sorts of things they break down, the sorts of metabolites they churn out and they protect us from the bad guys because by being there they take up space, they take up resources and they secrete factors that suppress the growth of things we don't want. But those bacteria themselves are fussy eaters. So what we eat selects for different bacteria so we get different proportions of bacteria based on our average diet. If you therefore eat a certain diet over a protracted length of time you will select for quite a a unique set of bacteria that are used to eating what you eat. If you then radically change your diet for instance you don't eat meat for a long time then you eat meat. The reason it makes a difference is because there's a lot of protein in the meat and other various chemicals and the bacteria that are there that are good at eating vegetables don't like eating meat because they're vegetarian and the bacteria that like to be carnivorous and eat meat they're in smaller Numbers and so as a result you can get an overproduction of certain molecules, an underproduction of others, an overgrowth of certain bacteria, and the whole thing takes a little while to settle down. And the same thing happens in reverse. A friend of mine, Giles Yo, who occasionally makes programmes for the BBC, he's a, a geneticist and he's interested in diet and intestinal health. He for the BBC made a documentary about a year ago and he was challenged to go vegan for a period of time. And as he put it, I was very windy for a month afterwards after I started because you're totally rewriting the microbial book on what lives in your intestines by this selection process. So I think it's very likely that this person probably did have some symptoms because of their microbiome not being used to a change in diet. But equally, one must be very cautious about food hygiene and food safety as well.
1: Without a doubt. Now, uh, caller Eve called in and said, please ask this particular question when she cracks open an egg and the yolk breaks immediately instead of being intact. Is it an indication there's something wrong with the egg?
0: No, almost certainly not. Uh, The structure of an egg is that you've got the yolk, which is full of fats and cholesterol and is a very big energy store, and around the yolk is a membrane, which is there to hold the yolk intact, so it's almost like a, a barrel or a wine bag, almost or a wine box that you can you can stick a straw into, and the developing chick basically extracts calories by pulling the calories out of the yolk because it's got blood vessels and things that go in there. This is this okay. would be if there was a chick in there. And the white is the protein store. That's the egg albumin. And that's a very rich supply of, of proteins which are then broken down and reassembled to build a developing chick or whatever's growing in that egg. Now, eggs are not designed to be tossed about and smashed into. They're designed to be laid and then nurtured and incubated, of course. So they haven't evolved to have a really tough yolk. So if you subject the egg to some forces when you smash into it and you burst the yolk open, you've just ruptured a very thin, fragile membrane that would normally be there just to hold the yolk intact. So it's not a sign that the egg is bad or anything if the yolk ruptures.
1: Another WhatsApp question that's come through. This one from Jenny. She asks, can't we make vacuum cleaners silent
0: the same way as silent electric cars? Oh, if only. Wouldn't that be wonderful? But the reason I make a noise is because anything that produces turbulence in other words, air moving chaotically, will produce sound. And this is why cars make a noise, because as they go down the road, they create turbulent air behind themselves as they push the air out of the way. And the air that's pushed out of the way then chaotically smashes back into itself behind the car. When an aeroplane goes along and the air that's flowing over the wings or off the backs of the engines and the tail fins, this causes turbulence when you have a wind turbine whooshing round and you can hear those those throbbing noises this is turbulence around the blades and so anything that causes turbulent air causes noise that we can hear and we often find disturbing now a vacuum cleaner how does it work well a vacuum cleaner uses an electric motor to pull air out of the pipe this puts the pipe at a lower pressure than the room air so the room atmospheric pressure pushes air carrying the dirt with it up the hoover pipe or the vacuum cleaner pipe. Mm-hmm. And because mm-hmm. it does that very fast, once you go beyond a certain speed, you exceed what's called the Reynolds number for the tube. And that's a quarter the Reynolds number will be dictated by the size of the thing that the tube is trying or the air is trying to move through so if you've got a narrow tube with fast moving air the Reynolds number's not be very high before you're into this turbulent regime the air spinning around chaotically making lots of uh, vibrations that you can hear and you get you get woken up if you're trying to sleep and your next door neighbors vacuuming or got their leaf blower out.
1: So how does that compare to electric cars then?
0: Well, electric cars remove one source of the noise, which is the engine, because most of the noise of a car is actually the air rushing around the car, because you can hear this if you listen to a road in the distance. You're not hearing the noises of engines, you're hearing the noises of turbulent air. Electric cars make it a bit better close to because there's not so much engine noise. The problem with electric cars and why they're a danger is because you can hear sound waves coming to you from all directions when a car is approaching with a normal engine, but the electric cars don't make as much noise. You don't have as much warning, so they're harder to detect when they're approaching. Same with electric bikes. Indeed. You are listening to Dr Chris Smith,
1: the Naked Scientist. Let's move on to Nigel in Durbanville. Hi, Nigel. Hi, Kino. Hi, Doc. How are you? Nigel. Very good, thank you. Question. Um, we've, we spend so much development on electric cars. Why not more development on hydrogen cell, which I believe manufacturers like Honda have done in states. They've got hydrogen cars. And when I was at, many decades ago at school, hydrogen, if I remember, was one of the most abundant things in the universe.
0: Yeah, you're right, Nigel. And at the moment, there's no clear consensus on what the best way to go is. People certainly haven't abandoned hydrogen, but what hydrogen does require is a fundamental change in infrastructure. At the moment, when we have cars going around on the road, we have petrol stations where you pull in and you put a liquid into a tank. Therefore, we're very geared up for transporting liquids, putting energy into liquid form, running cars on liquid-based fuels. Same for the aviation industry. Storing gas, transporting yeah. gas, etc. is more challenging, but, that, but not an impossibility. So what people are saying is, well, perhaps we'll go to a hydrogen and ammonia economy because there are various things you can do with ammonia and you can store ammonia as a liquid. You can use it in various fuel things. You can do various things with it, which which you uh, ca- can do with fuel. You can use it in an energy store. Hydrogen will fit down domestic gas pipes quite nicely. People are doing studies on that now. So it, it may well be we don't just settle on one solution. Electric cars are attractive, certainly at the moment, before we start to run out of all the materials we need to put in the batteries because uh, the batteries are getting quite good. The cars can therefore go a reasonable distance, and they're non-polluting. So although it takes energy to make the car, it takes energy to make the batteries, it takes energy unless you get it from a renewable source to put the electricity into the car, once you've made the car and it's running and it's powered, it's actually not making any emissions. The downside is that you've got to plug it in. So you've got to have some kind of charging infrastructure. So at the moment, no one knows what the best way forward is going to be, because this one common currency of energy, which has been the petroleum industry, hitherto, that's going to come to an end. And we now have to decide what's going to become the new industry standard. And no one wants to jump first. And no one technology has emerged as the gold standard because all of them have benefits, but all of them have disbenefits or, you know, disadvantages as well.
1: Wonderful. Thank you very much. Good question. Thanks, eh, Nigel. Have a wonderful weekend, sir. Now, another one here. Why do scientists describe water as hard and soft? What does it actually mean and how does it affect how it can be used?
0: Hardness refers to the presence of various salts which are dissolved in the water and which affect the way in which the water behaves when you put detergents and soaps into it or when you boil it. Very hard water, which you'll find certainly in certain many parts of South Africa, where there's a lot of limestone, where the rainfall comes down. You'll notice that when you boil the kettle a few times, it begins to develop hard, chalky material inside the kettle. And this is because the salts, which are dissolved by the water on its way to you, to your, into your house, end up coming back out of solution and then forming this hard scale in the kettle when you heat it up. Now hardness comes in two forms, what are called permanent forms of hardness and temporary forms of hardness. Permanent hardness is things like magnesium salts and magnesium sulfate, magnesium uh, chloride and that kind of thing which is in the water. These are substances which can interact with soap and detergent and will basically make insoluble scummy material when you put soap into the water and therefore they stop the soap working properly. So they're, they're a nuisance but they stay in the water. Temporary hardness is more of a problem, really, because what happens there is that when it rains, rainwater dissolves some carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and a few other bits and pieces, and this makes uh, carbonic acid. And when that carbonic acid lands on limestone, it reacts with the limestone, which is calcium carbonate, and it makes calcium bicarbonate, CaHCO3, twice. That, unlike the chalk it came from, is soluble, so you've now got water with this dissolved calcium in it. When that arrives in your kettle or your hot water tank or your bath... The application of heat causes the bicarbonate to fall apart you drive off some water and you get calcium carbonate formed again that's the lime scale that forms in your tank and also if you mix soap with that the presence of the calcium will form a scum again with with the soap so you end up using a lot more soap so the hardness is a pain because it increases your use of detergents and soaps and it also encourages the deposition of scale inside your kettles and hot water tanks and is therefore a nuisance because it drives up your energy bills
1: Interesting question here, this one to do with
0: the eyes. Can two blue-eyed people have a brown-eyed
1: child? I mean, in my parents' case, um, they both have brown eyes and I'm the blue-eyed boy. (laughs) Let's (laughs) answer that question.
0: The (laughs) genetics of eye colour is extremely complicated. We used to think it was going to be simple, and now people have actually looked at this. There are seven or eight different genes which are involved in how we colour eyes. The colour bit of the eye is called the iris, and the uh, genes add colour to the blank canvas which is naturally blue so if you have no color being added to your eye you are endowed with blue eyes as soon as any of those genes which are involved in this pathway start adding colored molecules which are forms of melanin then you start to have a different eye color now, you can have blue eyes because you 've got all these genes working, and they would all add color, but one of them 's broken and it interrupts the pathway, and so that stops you making any color in the eye and you have blue eyes so it 's possible for parents to have um, both have blue eyes because the genes that would add color to their eyes are broken. but when they have a baby, because when you have a baby, you mix the genes from one parent with the genes from the other parent it 's possible to restore functioning color genes to the part of the body that's going to make the eyes because you select the right combination of working genes from the two parents and put them together and now you've got working eye color genes again so blue-eyed parents could have brown-eyed children the other way it can happen is what happens a few percent of the time which is you don't have the parents you think you do
1: Ha! that's an interesting one indeed chris you must have a wonderful weekend and thank you very much thanks for us, as always um, dr chris smith there the naked scientist